Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for, again for being here. For those of you who may be more balanced in your perspective, I'm not off-center today. I have moved over to more of the central issue in the class. Some of you know, some of you know Gwendolyn Casanova. And so she had asked that I would pull the pulpit closer to her so she could hear better and receive more. So this is what I did. She said it in her inimical, inimical, however way, personal way. She asked to do it the other way, but what she meant was bring it toward me. That's what you call tongues and interpretation, <laughs> which we'll get to in the sermons and on Sunday morning in a few weeks, I'm sure. Well, thank you for being here once again as we continue to go through <clears throat> this very important area of Scripture, not that others are not important, but sometimes certain areas of Scripture are more immediately applicable to us than other areas. I think you know that, don't you? That doesn't make one more important or raise the significance of one over the other or diminish one. It just says that the equality of the significance of God's Word is, is applied to our lives and is activated and realized in us to various degrees at certain times in our life. That's what that says. I was listening the other day. Don't ever ask a man for dates. The ladies in here know whatever. I have said sometimes to my wife, you know, well, three weeks ago she said it was three years ago. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. The fact that I remembered it is amazing. And I was listening the other day to a program concerning how the earth will end. And so that caught my imagination. So I want to see what they say. And, of course, they talk about pestilence. They talk about meteorites. You know, all the kinds of things that could end the earth, forgetting that there's going to be an end according to one decree. God will end it. And he'll end it his way. So it much doesn't matter. But part of this was an, an a, a, let me get my words back in my mouth. Part of the presentation was end time prophecy fulfillment of the return of Jesus. And I don't remember the preacher's name. And I'm not saying this to elevate or denigrate or ridicule or anything. I just want to give us an example. This fellow had gone through the Scriptures and had determined that Jesus would return May 21st, 2011 at 6 o'clock. Okay? Now, there's still other honest, sincere men of God who are searching the Scriptures to determine the exact date of Jesus' return. They're, they're still there. Now, we don't say they're not sincere. We don't say they're not men of God. And what I want to bring to our attention is this. Not only did this man miss it, but because of the extreme preoccupation of a particular moment in history, he, the people around him, and they had him literally, he was standing in Times Square, and all the news media was upon him. And they said, you know, people were saying, one more minute, one more minute. 
And so at 6 o'clock and after it, they were all saying, we're still here. <laughs> and they started doing what you did. They laughed. That's the danger. First of all, doing something that God has not given us to do brings a reproach to him and his word. What Jesus gives us in the Word, beginning in Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation, what Jesus gives us in His Word is this. He gives us the fact of His return. He states it, but He doesn't date it. He gives us the times, the seasons that we should be knowledgeable about. That when we look at the horizon, we see it's going to rain or it won't rain. And it looks like, oh, my word, it's going to rain today because I see those clouds and I hear the thunder. And all of a sudden, it doesn't rain. How many of us have been in New Orleans long enough that when we see clouds and hear thunder, that does not mean it's going to rain? But it, there's a likelihood of it. The fact is this. Jesus is coming back. Why is he coming back? He's coming back because of the necessity of bringing to the great triumphant conclusion the purpose of God in creating us, bringing his people into his kingdom in a new earth and a new heaven so that in his people and with his people, God may be glorified. That's the purpose. And so we continue to go through this material today. And whatever your disposition is, as we've said before, if you take the position that I believe this is going to happen and here are the events, or I think this is going to hold it biblically, Hold it with some passion, but hold it humili in humility. Correct? That's what we're talking about. The one who came the first time is indeed coming back. And he says this continually, when you don't expect me. And then he says something else, and I want us to be aware of this as we go through the material today and it will come to accentuation next week. There is a basis on which God judges his people. And there is a basis upon which we are to be prepared for his return. So let's see if we see some of that. So chapter 25, I'm sorry, chapter 24 verses 48 to 51. This is where we ended last week, this last parable in chapter 24. 48 to 51, chapter 24 of Matthew. But if that wicked servant says to himself, remember the servants are waiting, the master has gone away. The master has gone away. Some of the servants are doing good. Remember, they're feeding. Remember that? The good servant feeding the people of the master. But if that wicked servant says to him, my master is delayed, Jesus is never coming back. Do you people really believe that? 
and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, once again, this is a what? Parable. A parable is a story that is given to teach particular spiritual truths. It is not a story which is a systematic theological statement. And so in these parables, there will be activities and people and results that look like if we're looking at it theologically trying to determine all the minuscule details of it and how it relates to the Christian life and what is God really saying about eternal life and salvation and so on, it's going to throw us off. Why? Because Jesus is using parables just to communicate a particular point. And the point of this parable is this. Be ready. Don't be a wicked person. Don't be like the wicked people who say he's never coming back and it doesn't matter how I live, okay? Because if you're not careful, you look at that and this is one of the servants. Okay, that means he's a child of God. And he beats the other servants. Okay, that means he's attacking other people in the church. And so when the, Jesus returns, that person who is a servant, who is a child of God, who is beating the other children of God, however that happens, whether verbally or whatever, he is going to lose his salvation. That's not what's being taught here. But do you see how it could be taught? Do you see that? That's not the point. The point is, and the entire context of this chapter and the next chapter is this. I'm coming back. Be ready. Be ready. And there's a way to be ready. Be doing my will. So in the previous verses, remember the 45 to 47, Jesus has just given us the example of the wise servant. And hopefully every one of us in this room are wise servants, wisdom in the context of God's wisdom in us. We are wise in Christ, and the wisdom of God in us as we are in Christ is active in us and is moving us as we cooperate with it to act wisely. And so what is that wise servant? It is the one who was found doing the master's will and so proves to be a true servant to his master. I want you to keep that in mind because next week we want to talk about something and I'll give you a hint. Is there a distinction between grace and good works? And we want to talk about that next week and clarify some confusion. Now in these verses, he's just said about the good servant. In these verses, Jesus shows that there is another group of people who take wicked advantage of the master's return, whose activity is antithetical to the master's will. What does antithetical mean? Anti, opposite, against. Remember, antichrist, in the place of, against Christ. But this group, this one that is antithetical to the master's return, 
that is antithetical to the master's will. This particular group will be caught off guard by the sudden return of the master who will recompense them according to their deeds in relation to the master. Now notice this. The judgment, and we already begin to see this, the judgment of God is based on one issue only. Deeds, works. Okay? Do you see that? Their deeds. They did this, accepted. They did that, unaccepted. Just want to make sure we see that because that will come to a crescendo, as I said, next week as we get into the rest of chapter 25 that we don't cover today. On his return, the master will judge the deeds of every servant. That means this, that at the return of Jesus, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us will be judged on the basis of one issue only, our deeds done in the body. And you say, wait a minute, that's different than what we've ever been taught. I don't think it is, but if it is in your mind, then there's confusion, and we'll get into that next week, and hopefully you'll return for that. In verses 45 to 47, those that did the master's will will be approbated, will be approved, will be accepted. In the section today, 48 to 51, those who are not doing the master's will unto condemnation. Two groups of people in the world, those that do the will of God and those that do not do the will of God. Two groups of people in the world. Now, in chapter 25, Jesus is going to conclude this last of his five groups of sermons as Matthew has collected them. And he's going to conclude his last sermon with a series of parables that are going to just further illustrate the necessity of how his people are to be prepared for his sudden return during this protracted period of tribulation. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 24. There's going to be a time of tribulation. When are you coming back? When is the end of the age? When will Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed? You remember the questions? And Jesus said, okay, I'll tell you. And then he gives them nine events that will happen. And that will happen by the time of 70 A.D. Those nine events essentially happened. They did not happen in absolute completeness and fruition, but they happened. And they happened in a way to signal that these are the kinds of events that will be occurring throughout history in this inter-Advent period. What do I mean by inter-Advent period? The period between Jesus' first return and second return. The Advent means the appearing. And so during this period of inter-Advent period, we're in the inter-Advent period for some of those of you who may not believe that. And so what happened in those nine events will be the kinds of events that will continue to happen over this period of tribulation beginning with the birth of the church until the resurrection of the church. There will be a time of tribulation, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have what? 
tribulation. You see, it's not confined just to the 10 minutes before Jesus returns. It's the whole period. Tribulation meaning that it will be the time of the increased opposition and attack of the enemy and the powers of evil against the church of Jesus Christ to undermine and dishonor the glory of God in his people. That's what's going on. And this period of tribulation will wax and wane, you know, but will ever be increasing as it waxes and wanes. The whole issue is going to be worse and worse over a period of time until the accentuation of all of this tribulation will come to a head just prior to the return of the Lord Jesus. How are we to live during that period? Well, the next parable's in the next parables, Jesus gives us some explanation of how my people are to live. How are we to be prepared? And this is very important for us today. Why? Because I think, well, first of all, I know we're living closer to the return of Jesus. Why? Because we're another day closer. Does that make sense to you? I mean, no, you'd be surprised. Some, some people, oh, I don't know. How do you know that? You know, okay. I don't have to look at signs in the times. I know that today I'm closer than I was Yesterday. How many of you know that today you're older than you were yesterday? I mean, we're moving on. Some of you may not know this, but we're moving on. And we're moving toward the day of the return of the Lord from heaven for his people. That's where our eyes are to be fixed as we look for that day and live in this day in view of that day. Live today in view of that day. Every decision, every thought, every attitude, every word, everything of our life, let it be in view of that day as we live this day. How are we to live? Chapter 25, the first 13 verses, the parable of the ten virgins or the bridesmaids. Then the kingdom of God will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. <clears throat> five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now look again. The distinction of humanity. Wise, foolish, good servants, wicked servants. You see that. There is a distinction that Jesus draws in all humanity. Five of them foolish five wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Okay. Now, this is during this protracted period of tribulation. They're sleeping. They're waiting. Okay, fine. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the, groom, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, those who were ready, and those who were ready, what? And those what? Who were ready. Who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast and the door was shut. 
Read verse 10 again. And while they were going to buy, while the others were scrambling around, trying to figure out what in the world is going on, the bridegroom came. And those who were what? Ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the what? Door was shut. What does that remind you of? The ark. And when Noah and the family were brought into the ark by the decree of God, and when they entered the ark, what happened? God shut the door. Afterward, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. I don't know you. Again, the parable illustrates the need of patient readiness that will be required until the groom returns. It's not about those who have the Holy Spirit and they get in and thems who didn't have the Holy Spirit enough and weren't Pentecostals, they didn't do as well. And it's not, it's not about any of that. Do you see that there are ten virgins? And to the foolish, Jesus doesn't say, you know, I knew you one time, Liz, but I don't know you anymore because you weren't ready. Do, do you see that he doesn't say that? He says, I don't know you. That is not true of any child of God. God knows us. Amen? He knows us. So this is not telling the church, believers, if you are not absolutely prepared for Jesus' return and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're speaking in tongues and you're doing all the works of God as we see, for instance, in the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which I believe and the elders and pastors of this church believe we should be doing, right, Phil? But it doesn't mean that if you're not, you're not going in. He says, I, never, I don't know you. Where do you see that in another place where Jesus says, I never knew you? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we work miracles in your name? Didn't, didn't we do great works in your name? Weren't we the ministers of God? And Jesus says what? Depart from me, you what? Workers of iniquity. For I knew you, but you fell out. Is that what he said? No. He says what? I what? Say it again. I what? One more time. I what? I never knew you. You weren't saved. These are not issues of losing or forfeiting or whatever, salvation. These are issues of readiness by the church of Jesus Christ. So when he returns, we can return, uh, we can receive his return with joy and with confidence and not shrink back as 1 John chapter 3 tells us. So that when Jesus returns, he can return with greater joy over his people who are joyfully, patiently, and busily in the biblical context anticipating his return. So it's not about a lot of these other things that we may hear. It's easy to take a parable like this and do all kinds of stuff with it. But the purpose of Jesus is to tell us, be ready. Be ready. Don't be like the foolish. In other words, how do I know whether I'm ready? I will know whether I'm ready 
if my deeds are commensurate with God's will. Correct? I know that I'm ready if my deeds are commensurate. You know what I mean by commensurate? In accords with God's will. Let me give you a warning here. There is a great danger. Come to receive Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess your sin. Repent. Great. We preach and teach that, don't we? We do it twice a year at the Alpha Retreat, and we do it at all kinds of other times. We believe in that. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord on time, what? Will be saved. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the authority to become what? The children of God, even to those who believed on his name. You remember that? In 1 John 1, 12 and 4, 13. So we believe in this issue of being born again and being saved. But the validity of our salvation is not proven by the emotional event of our salvation. Many people have strong emotional responses to the gospel and are not saved. Many people have not had a strong emotional event to the gospel and are saved. Are you in any of these categories? Anybody in these categories? The proof is not in how I felt or what experienced at that time when you knelt down or when I pray for you or I pray, you know. Well, that's not the proof. That may be part of the proof. The proof is this. Are the deeds of my life commensurate with what happened when I say I was saved. Right? Are the deeds of my life commensurate with what happened when I said I was saved? Now, does that mean don't worry about how, what happened when you were saved? No, it doesn't mean anything like that. But what it does mean this. I need to be careful, and we need to be careful not to build the monument or the edifice or the proof or the dependence of our salvation on an experience that happened to us at a particular time. God doesn't do that. He takes the whole life, the whole life. You have been saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. Those are the three tenses that the Bible uses in relation to salvation. Why do I say this? Because we need to be careful as God's people not to be living under false pretenses, but to be living as the Bible gives it, up, gives it to us in the Word of God. So this parable, Jesus is illustrating patient readiness. All of the preparations for the marriage have been made. Hey, Everything's ready. The bridegroom could return when? Now. Everything's ready. 
the exact day of his return is uncertain, but the fact of his return is certain. Remember in John 14, Jesus saying to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I not have told you? And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I what? What? I will. I what? I will do what? Come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. That is a statement, I believe, about the fact of our salvation, but also a statement about his return to conclude the culmination of our salvation. Acts 1.11, Peter is speaking. He says, men of Galilee, I'm sorry, the, 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 uh, the angel speaking to the uh, men who are standing around watching Jesus go into the air. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Friends in Christ, he's coming back. He's coming back. But when? When? We don't know exactly. You notice I did say exactly? We don't know exactly, but we do know. So let us be prepared. The point that Jesus makes in the parable is not about the number of bridesmaids nor the eternal destiny of the foolish. That's not the point. The emphasis of Jesus is upon the necessity of vigilance, of keeping themselves ready for the certain return and his unexpected return. The wise virgins are prepared through their faithful living for and anticipating Christ's soon return. Don't keep your eyes on the foolish virgins. Look at the wise virgins. Those are the ones who are faithfully living and whose faithful living proves that they are people of God and anticipates the return of Christ. And those are the ones who will enter into the marriage feast. The foolish were not prepared and were shot out, shut out of the wedding. Look at the next parable, 14 to 30. For it, what? What? Verse 13 before, the day of the hour. For it, what? That time of my return, the day of the hour, remember? Will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more. So also he who had two talents made two more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it and put it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, okay, after a little while, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. You see what that means? I'm coming back. The accounts will be settled. The accounts of what? The accounts of what we did with what he gave us, the accounts of our deeds. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five, and here I've made five more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. 
And who, he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Oh, you see, God is hard. You see, that it's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the use of his talents and gifts as his people being ready for him and reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered. Is, is this a, a description of God? Is it? So can we see that the parable is not a theological document? Verse 25, so I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you must have what is yours. But his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and you gathered where I scattered no, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and, at least, and at my coming should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For to everyone who has been given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is happening here? You see, in this parable, Jesus continues with the same emphasis. The servants who are ready and prepared are those whose readiness is characterized by their deeds that honor and anticipate the return of the Lord. The talents. In Sunday morning service and sermons, beginning in a couple of weeks, we're going back into 1 Corinthians. And we're going to see that 1 Corinthians, the church has a lot of issues. And in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about these gifts of the Spirit, these talents. And that's not the only place where the gifts of the Spirit are talked about. God has given each one of us a gift. What is that gift? The Holy Spirit. Remember Romans 5, 5? For the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, not to everyone, but to us. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit if you're saved. Would you agree with that? That means this, that it is impossible not to have an aspect of ministry gift. It is impossible for none of us or any of us not to have at least one particular ministry gift. Ministry meaning what? Ministering the good, the truth of the gospel in some way. Every one of us, do any of you feel you don't have any gifts? If you feel that way, and you may feel that way, what you need to do is go to God and ask the Holy Spirit, first of all, confirm, I know you're living in me. You are the gift of God. Remember Jesus said the gift, and so on the Holy Spirit. I know I have a gift resident in me. Would you show me what it is and then begin to move me and empower me that I may begin to use it because I don't want to be a servant who does not use the gifting that you have given to me. We all have gifts. We all have gifts. And so look at what happens in verse 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, is a very instructive gift. 
and we'll get to this in the sermons on Sunday morning. Very instructive word here in verse 11, second, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. You remember the master. He brought his servants before him, and he says, okay, to Raul, I'm giving these five gifts. Okay, great. Now, Perry's sitting there and thinking, well, Raul got five, great. I'm expecting at least what? At least what? I'm expecting at least five because he got five. I'm giving you two gifts. So what? Wait a minute. That's unfair. Don't you hear the news media all over this? Don't be duped by Satan's schemes through the news media church. Don't be duped. He's all over it. Well, wait, wait. This guy got five, and he's been in the church. How long have you been here? No, no, about four months. And where are you from? You're not even in from New Orleans. <laughs> the man's been here only four months, and he's not even from New Orleans. He's not one of us. And he got more than I did. And not only did he get more than I did, he got the ones I think I should have had because I like the ones he had, and the ones I have, they're okay, but they're not nearly as nice hit kit as the ones he got. Oh, if I could only preach like Keith Collins. Oh. You haven't heard the rest of the statement yet, brother. You may be swallowed up on that one. There's Jonah going into the mouth of the whale. <laughs> you dirty. Uh, so at any rate, look, look. You know, I don't mind Phil doing that. He's older than I am, and he doesn't know much. <laughs> oh, that I could pray like Phil Widener from the Psalms. Oh, that I could, no, no, idolatry, 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 idolatry. Now, need to say it anymore? Oh, that I could have his position in life. Then I could, oh, that I, the master gives the talents. Who makes the decision who gets what? And how many? The master does. So look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. So we get a man like, what's your name again? Hmm? Lloyd. His name is Floyd, actually, not Lloyd. Did you say Lloyd? Oh, Floyd, okay. And so we get Floyd and Beth into the church. Floyd comes in. He knows a little music. Correct? You can hum a tune, can't you? So he comes into the church humming a tune. I'm just mentioning him because he's new to the church and he knows something about music. The only thing I know about music is listening to it. Past that, nothing. So Floyd comes in here and thinks, well, I'm coming in with my gift and I'm going to use it and I hope the church makes sure that I have a gift, I know the gift, and I'm going to put this gift to use. Maybe 
or maybe not? Whose decision? Oh, well, God gave me the gift. God gives and then God puts to use at seasons in our life, sometimes one gift over another, sometimes one gift throughout the life, and sometimes one or two gifts for a season and no longer. Amen? So what does verse 11 say? The Holy Spirit gives these gifts how? As he wills. That's important to know. That's important to know. I remember when I came into this church, Gene and I came here. We were here in April of 78. We walked in. In 1978, how, were, how old were we then? Oh, 34, almost 35. That's right, 40 years ago. I was, we were 34, 35, somewhere around there. I had already been teaching since I was 19. Now, I don't remember how many, I don't know how many years that is, but it's a few years, you know. What, 15 years? Is that right? So I'm a teacher. I was a teacher in high school. I taught in church since I was 19 years old. So I walk into the church, if I'm not careful, fully expecting that I will be using my gift, correct? Five years. Four or five years. I once in a while substituted for Bill Treby, who used to teach this class. It's okay. It's God's will. You see, because my gift isn't mine. It's God's. It's on loan to me. And the moment I press the use of my gift according to my desire, I will pollute and ruin the effectiveness of the gift. It's not my ministry. It's not mine. I've been a pastor here since 1990. And I've been on the board of this church since 1978. I've been in leadership of this church for 40 years. And, A.J., it's not my ministry. It's not my ministry. It's God's use. And he will use me and Gene until the moment he says step down. And when I hear step down, I'm stepping down. If he says step aside, I'm stepping aside. If he says step up, I'm stepping up. But I want to step with God. I don't want to step ahead of God and tell God how he needs to use me because doesn't he know who I am and how much education I have and how many theological books I've read, right? It's his will. Why? He's the king. So let us be a people who are ready to use the, to, to know the talents, to use the talents, but not to use the talents within the context of our own desires and will, but within the context of the will of God in us. And who is the primary beneficiary of all the talents of God in me? He is. He's the primary beneficiary. If you were using a talent, if you were using it, if you were being used in ministry and you don't understand and see and fully recognize and experience that God is the primary beneficiary of all of the talents that he has given us, you've missed something. You've missed the most important point. We are the secondary beneficiaries. The primary beneficiary is not the church. It's not the lost. It's not my mom and them. Is God himself. Amen? He is the primary beneficiary. Aren't you glad of that? So, 
Next week, in the next parable, we'll be looking at the last judgment. And I want you, when you read this last parable, when the Son of Man returns in glory, I want you to read it within this context. It will be the deeds of all people that will determine their destiny. The deeds of all people. Hopefully by now we are seeing the central place of our deeds or works in our being prepared for Christ's return. By the way, if you haven't signed in, please do so. This helps me so much to let me know who is here. If you haven't done that, sign in, please do so. See you next week. Thank you so much.